0: Good morning. Today's text, we uh, have the great privilege of witnessing the first convert to Christianity from the African continent. Praise the Lord. It's a great day in the life of the church, and particularly to celebrate this text at this time in history is a great thing. Uh, If you go back uh, in history, you'll all be well aware that since the fourth century, Uh, The greatest uh, continent-wide people movements to Christ have been the European peoples. Uh, The European peoples almost became uh, continuous with what it meant to be a Christian. People often thought of Christianity as a white person's religion or a part of the European experience. No one could imagine the day when that would change. Over centuries, and yet today in your generation, uh, for the first time in history, the African Continent-wide movement to Christ will pass the European people to Christ. This represents a, the most one of those dramatic stories. This is not simply a chapter in church history. This is an epoch in church history. Uh, just a hundred years ago, the average kind of like symbolic Christian person would be a 47-year-old uh, British male. Today, it's a 27-year-old. Kenyan woman. The gospel is a lot more like mercy than like me, all right? That's the world that we are now in, and all began in this text today with the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, To lay the, the foundation for this text, I want us to actually go back 1633 years to another African Christian. And this person was 31 years old in the year uh, 386. i just curious, do we have any 31 year olds here today? Oh, my goodness. Well, I almost uh, lost my 31 years there. Um, <laughs> I was looking at it, you, not know, looking down. 31 years old here and 31 years old there. Okay. We have two 31 years old and one live president. That's a good, (laughs) making progress here. Okay, think about him and him when you think about Augustine at 31 years old. Now, Augustine at this point is already the professor of rhetoric in the great court of Milan. This is a very prestigious position. Augustine is already very respected, obviously an amazing, gifted person, but at this particular point, he's living in rented quarters, and he is in complete, utter agony. And he's in agony because he had spent the previous eight years engulfed in a a heresy called Manichaeism. okay? This was a Gnostic movement. He was heart and soul into it. And though it was very intellectually stimulating in many ways and had what he thought at one time promised for understanding science and the universe, uh, it had no regard for the human body. So he had given himself over to all kinds of uh, licentiousness, uh, all kinds of uh, pleasures. He had been involved in orgies. He was involved in drunkenness. He was involved in a lot of illicit behavior sexually. In fact, he had multiple lovers, and even had uh, one of his lovers gave birth to a child out of wedlock. So by the time we get to 387, in, the, uh, in these winter quarters, he is in agony because he had been so convinced intellectually, uh, by this point, of the truth of Christianity, he had forsaken his Manichaeism, but he was bound up by the flesh. I'm going to go back on top of here so I won't fall down. All right. <laughs> So he, um, he goes out into the garden, and this is not a vegetable garden. This is a garden you know, where he sits by the grass and under the trees. And he sits by this bench, and he is in agony. And he, he starts to pull his hair out, he begins to swing his arms around. He finally gets up, and he goes over to a fig tree, and he falls down on his, on his knees. And he begins to weep uncontrollably. And I'd actually forgotten this part of the story until this week when I reread the account in Augustine's confessions. But he says in the confession that at this point he began to cry out with the words of Psalm 13, How long, O Lord? Have you ever had that prayer? Lord, I need, I need an, an intervention here. Lord, how long, O Lord? He was a weep uncontrollably. And then at that moment, he has what I would call a divine moment. This is like, you know, this is like, I don't know, this is Elijah hearing the still small voice. This is that moment. This is like Samuel on his bed hearing, you know, Samuel, Samuel. This is that kind of moment. At that moment, he hears a little voice, a sing-song voice. He later says, I don't know if it was boy or girl, it's clearly children, and they were singing this little phrase, telelege, telelege, which was what must have been, if you don't know that phrase, the incomprehensible title of the sermon on your bulletin. Telelege, take up and read, take up and read. Now this becomes one of the turning points in the whole history of the church. Because Augustine at that point, an amazing thing happened, he what would you think if someone said, if you heard a voice, take up and read? Well, at that point, he didn't think, as he could have, of the Ethiopian eunuch who took up the scroll of Isaiah and read. He thought about another African Christian, which would have loomed large in his day, uh, St. Anthony of the Desert. Now, St. Anthony of the Desert lived just before, before Augustine. In fact, they have two years' overlap in their lives. He died. When Augustine was two years old, but for Augustine uh, himself, he's an Algerian. Augustine, he's from Algeria. He, uh, they revered the Desert Fathers, and Anthony was the first. And he remembered that time when Anthony had gone through his own excruciating pain in his life, and he had opened the Bible up in a moment of crisis, and he had fallen upon that text which said what he needed to hear, where it said. Go, sell all you have, give to the poor, and follow me. And Anthony had gone out, and one, again, one of the great chapters of the history of the church was written in the beginning of the whole Desert Fathers and the monastic movement. Augustine numbered that. And I'm not calling for like Bible roulette for every time you have a question, but God used it. So Augustine, at that moment, when he heard God's word, spoke coming to this child, Telelege, telelege. He opens up, and this is what his eyes fall to. Romans 13, 13, and 14. Of all people, this is what Augustine fell to. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not with orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in strife and jealousy, but clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Wow. Wow. Now, talking about God's word, we use the expression, jumping off the page at you. This literally jumped off the page at him, just the way it happened to Antony, as we'll see later today, happens uh, with the eunuch. And, of course, the result is a tremendous conversion. And uh, he was, of course, baptized by uh, Ambrose. And I love the fact that his mother had been praying for him so earnestly. She was so distraught. And that wonderful, if you know the confessions, that text where she goes to Ambrose, weeping over the lostness of her son, Augustine. Some of you are weeping for your children. And he, uh, or you those who've been weeped, wept over. And the, uh, Ambrose said to uh, Monica, said, the son of such tears can never be finally lost. You see, God remembered the tears of Monica. And I believe it was the tears of Monica that drove the, t- the children playing to s- to shout out in some game. He thinks, pick up and read that God used to turn around the heart and life of one of the most influential African Christians in the world. This text is before us today. Uh, comes in a, a a block of text in uh, in the in Acts between Acts 8:1 Acts 11:19. Um, this pat this this text this whole ch- ch- chunk. It says about the phrase, uh, a persecution broke out in the church, and then those scattered by the persecution. This persecution frames this passage, and this is the period in Acts which transitions the church from Jewish fulfillment to Gentile, you know, global vision. This is not just fulfilling Jewish promises and hopes, Jesus Christ, we transition to Lord Jesus Jesus Christ for the world. And so this becomes a very important transition, and it's not easy to get us to the gospel being preached directly to Greek-speaking, uncircumcised Gentiles. And so it goes in gradual stages. You have four passages. You have the Samaritans, which we saw last time, which, was, uh, which are Jews, heretical Jews, but are uh, circumcised Samaritans. You have then the Ethiopian eunuch, our text for today, this is all in Acts 8 and then Acts 9. You have the conversion of Saul of Tarsus because he becomes the great uh, you know, missionary to the Gentile world. We've got to get him saved. And then, of course, you have the, uh, the, the, the great text of Cornelius' household where Peter goes and preaches the gospel to God-fearers. Again, Gentiles, but had adhered themselves to Judaism. So this is this, this four stages, especially three stages, four accounts is extremely important for where we are in moving the gospel to where it happens. Now, last time we saw that Philip was in Samaria and he is preaching the gospel and having a revival. We should have a map up here. I want to show you this map. This shows you where he is. Just to remind you, you can see up there on the top, uh, Philip is up there in Samaria. And Philip is experiencing revival. This was part five of the series. Holy Spirit is falling down upon people. They, uh, Simon the Magician is gloriously delivered. It, in fact, it's such an amazing revival that Peter and John are called down to lay hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit. So people are, I mean, Facebook is going wild. People are posting on Facebook The pictures of the revivals are all over Instagram. Uh, You have, some of the magician has a testimony already uploaded to YouTube. All right? This thing is going viral. It's exciting. And what does the Lord say to Philip? The Lord says, Get thee out to the Gaza Road. Now, if you look at the map, you'll see this big arrow switching down from Samaria all the way to Gaza. This is is a very desolate road. This is a wilderness road. This is the road going to Egypt. People don't travel that road much. It's the middle of the day. No one travels in the heat of the day. This is like the worst possible non-intuitive command. Lord, don't you know we're in revival here? It's like the Lord, some of you you guys were in revival in your churches, and the Lord said, get thee up and go to Wilmore. Lord, are you sure? There's nothing going on in Wilmore. So here you have this amazing, amazing counterintuitive, sometimes God calls us away from revival. It happened that to George Whitefield too, didn't it? Of course, John Wesley was the one who came in after that when he was called to leave. Sometimes God has plans that we don't understand. In fact, a lot of times, And part of the theme of Acts is that the mission, guess who drives the mission of the church? Not the missions committee. Not the missions budget. Not the pastor. The the mission of the church is driven by God himself, the triune God. One of the great themes of this passage. So here's Philip being traveled, being told to go 50 miles away, and yet he has a divine moment. He goes down there, and the text right rightfully says that he he comes with an Ethan unit who is the treasurer of the Candace. This is not a name, it's a title. This is the queen of Ethiopia. Her name is Amanatare. She served from 25 to 41 A.D., and this is her main official, the eunuch. This is a person that's smart, he's intelligent, he's literate, obviously. He's wealthy, and he represents the whole kingdom. And he had been up in Jerusalem, probably as a God-fearer, to to pay his respects, to worship the Lord, and come back. But he is, let's be blunt here, clearly an uncircumcised Gentile. This is really a big moment in the history of the church. So Philip is there, and this is, I think, even more importantly for our text today, this is the keyhole to the global witness of the church. This is the first doorway. God walks through a doorway and it leads to Africa. Now, I just got back from, uh, from being in Taiwan and India. I just want to say to use those of you who are becoming part and are part of the Asbury tribe. This is a great tribe to be a part of. It is a great tribe to be a part of. I've had the privilege of now meeting uh, over 1,500 of this tribe all over the world. And I met them in Taiwan, I met them in India, and I'm telling you, God is doing great things through Asburyans all over the world, including here in Kentucky, of course, but all over the world. And it is a real honor to be a part of that group. I, I just wish that I was an Asbury alum. I'm not part of the tribe, I'm just leading the tribe. But you're part of this tribe, and it's a great thing, and you should be so thankful to be part of this group. And in some ways, it all happens right here. This is the moment where this movement becomes not confined by Jewish particularity, but defined by global universality. Well, in verse 29, we shouldn't read over this. It says, the Holy Spirit spoke to Philip, saying, go up to the chariot. Now, I want to stop right there. I want to say, okay, I wonder how many of us, and this is why I want to make sure this was included in this series, understand that the Holy Spirit can direct us in God's mission. Everybody in this room believes in the Missio Dei. You've had lectures on it. But the question is, the point is, it comes down to God directing people. Can the Holy Spirit direct us? Um, In my life, uh, to be perfectly candid with you, I have had a number of times where I now know the Holy Spirit directed me to say something in a particular situation or do something, and I squelched it. I just didn't. I just. I, I knew. I kind of knew the Lord was speaking to me, but I just like no. You know, I rationalized out of it, and I didn't. I didn't do anything. I found later, you know, I know that was the Spirit prompting me, and I just didn't do it. I've had, who only God knows how many times that he has tried to speak to me and I never even knew he was. Right, that's the unknown. I mean, how many times would God have led me if I had just been listening and not rushing between two meetings, all right? So I, please hear me. This is an area where I have been asking God for years to help me grow. I was in an intensive care unit one time and I, uh, again, I didn't grow up in a church that talked about the Holy Spirit said to me. It's not my world, okay? Uh, we had people saying things to us, but it never was the Holy Spirit, all right? So, um, I was I was in an SC unit, and I was going to visit one of my parishioners, just kind of normal pastoral duties, and I'm kind of the person, you know, go to point A, go to point B, and then get back home, you know, quick as possible. So, I go there, do my thing, and I visit, pray, pray with a person, and I come out of the ASC unit, and I... I just sensed the Lord say to me, I felt the Spirit say to me, Go into that IC unit over there and pray with that man. Okay, I didn't know who was in that room. I didn't know anything about it. I just, like, I felt I should go to that IC unit. So I went over there and did it. I went to that IC unit and prayed with that man. And I'm really glad I did. And I felt like, you know, I, the Holy Spirit actually spoke to me. All right. That's what I'm talking about. I was in, uh, when I was a pastor of another church, there was a man who, uh, I mean, a woman in our church who raised her hand every Sunday. And you know, these, this is a small church, small enough to have, you know, prayer requests in the church, right? So she raised her hand every Sunday. She raised her hand and says, please pray for my husband, Kent. So I'd write it down on a piece of paper, and we'd pray for Kent. Oh, I never, I didn't, I didn't know Kent. He, I knew his reputation. He was uh, involved in drugs in our community. He was a very rebel riser. He was all the things Augustine was before the, uh, the, the, the garden experience. So I never knew him, and so I thought, I finally, after hearing this prayer request, literally dozens of times, I finally said, okay, as a pastor, i got to do something here. So I said to, to her, I said um, to his wife, who never missed church, I said, hey, wh- wh- what is your husband like? What is his passion? She said, well, he just loves hunting, fishing, He's, it's his whole world. I said, great, I'll, I'll invite him to go fishing. Okay, you have to understand me, I have never fished in my life. I do not own a fishing rod, okay? I know nothing about fishing, but I had this idea about fishing, okay? I had this kind of emotional feeling about fishing, you know? Sitting on the bank, you know, like casting, pop, you know, you know? Fishing on the bank, this sounds great. And I said, we could talk about the gospel, and this would be like our, you know, the, the fishing kind of our, kind of like this background, you know, it's just a, it's basically a way to sit on the bank for two hours with somebody. This is great. So, I borrowed a fishing rod from somebody, and they gave me a little lesson on how to cast. They had like one of those floaters. It was like a baby rod, you know? And so I um, I'd go to Kent, I call him up and say, hey, you know, you wanna go fishing? Yeah. So, go. I go to his house. He lives in a trailer. And to my amazement, he gets in his truck, we right go there, and he pulls out these like waders. He said, get in this wader. So, we get these waders. He took my, my rod. He threw it in his truck and said, that's a piece of junk. <laughs> his other rod, he says, we're fishing for trout. And he said, I don't want to fish for you know, stock trout. That's worthless. I'm going for the native trout up in the mountains. I spent hours trudging behind him in this water while he was up somewhere in the future, distance, casting, catching fish. He's putting in his patch. I, I couldn't even cast. I was just like trudging around. Went the whole, all the way till dark. There was no chatting with the gospel on the banks of any lake. I got home and realized that the Tim Tennant evangelistic plan to save Kent Britain was not working. <laughs> so what did I do? I, I I did nothing. I just kept praying. Well, Lord, I tried. I, I tried to go fishing with. Him. I tried, What else does the guy? Well, how can I connect with this guy? Because I was deeply wanting to see this guy touched. Well, one night the phone rings. I'm already in bed, phone rings. This woman in my church, pastor, you must come to my house right now. My husband's had a dream and he's had the dream three times and he wants to know what the dream means. He's in great distress, I told him that you would come and interpret it. I was like, what? I said, do you think I'm Joseph? I said, this is crazy. I didn't have that class. I mean, I didn't even, I didn't even know Steve Siemens. I mean, I, I wasn't Asbury, man. I didn't even know this was even possible. I mean, what? Interpret a dream? That was like in the Old Testament. People in Georgia don't read dreams. So she said, You've got to come. I've told him that you're going to come over here. So I got in the car. I drove over there, like, Oh my goodness. And as a Lord, what am I going to do? So she, and then I get there, she coyly says to me, See you later. <laughs> she leaves to go visit her mother, leaves me there in the trailer with this man, with Kent, and one I'd gone fishing with. And his house, and his, this is a trailer, okay? He lives in a trailer in the North Georgia the Mountains. The, the, uh, his, his living room, you going to call it that, the floor of the trailer is a bear rug. I mean, one that he had killed, you know, with the bear, the whole bear. Whole thing. The walls of the church are filled with, with racks of deer antlers. The doorway, was, I had to duck underneath turkey beards. Okay, he'd shot turkey. This guy was into hunting, and of course, a very loudly actually a nature show was on the television. This was the context. So he tells me his dream, and the Lord spoke to my heart. And I felt the Lord tell me, I'm not a Joseph, but I kind of figured out what to say to him. The Lord gave me the impulse, and I just, okay, you got to be bold here. I told him what his dream meant. And then the Lord, the Spirit spoke to me another time and said, and this is so counterintuitive because I wanted to say to him, you know, re, I want you to repent and believe the gospel. i shared the gospel with him, and I, but instead I felt like saying to him, not repent and believe, I said, but I said, if you want to do business with God, Turned the television off. Gave him something very practical to do. And so he, we sat there. with was like eternity. I'm sure it was just a few seconds. He sat there looking at me, and all of a sudden, he reached up, and he turned the television off. And the minute he did that, he started weeping. I mean, he started weeping uncontrollably, went onto the ground weeping. And he opened his heart, and he received the Lord Jesus Christ. And when his wife came home an hour or two later, she walks into the room, and there's this man who's been totally transformed by the gospel. And she cannot believe it. Like Monica, she had cried and prayed over him. And here she was meeting him, and it happened because of no evangelistic plan of mine, which had failed, it happened because the Holy Spirit drove the mission of the church. And I know that there's all kinds of potential excesses of this. And I know that, uh, in fact, in church history, the second century, the the whole Phrygian uh, uh, heresy, what we call Montanism, Montanism emerged because the church also got off on this and they didn't stick to the word of God and the church had to clamp down on it. There's always dangers to this. But what you don't want is to clamp the, the lid so tight that there's no place for us to hear the Holy Spirit. And it all becomes just a human kind of machinery. And Americans, especially, are good at that. Uh, we know how to work things out in, kind of in, in, a, uh, in a kind of uh, corporate way. But here you find a church driven by mission, driven by the Holy Spirit. And so he goes up, and there again, in a divine moment, of all places, God is orchestrating this. He is reading from the skull of Isaiah, which he probably pur- pur- purchased in Alexandria. And here he's on the way back to the Cushitic region. This is just south. We say Ethiopian eunuch. That's all things south of Egypt. So this is probably from, uh, because this, can't, this name Candace, this is actually from the Cushitic region of Nubia, so, therefore, he is from what's today modern day Sudan, northern Sudan. Think about it. One of the most conflicted places on earth today is where the Ethiopian eunuch was from. It was a great kingdom at that time. And of all places, he's reading from Isaiah 5. what we call Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. This is a chapter that says he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Wow. Can you believe he's reading that text? And then he says, I mean, to me, you know, he, he asked uh, Stephen, you know, he asked Philip, he said, you know, is the prophet referring to himself or someone else? And this is a divine moment. He, Philip actually says to him, he says to them, a very kind of play on words. He says to them, case, gnoskes, case, reading, understanding. Do, in other words, are you just reciting this or do you really understand it? In other words, the Holy Spirit has to make it clear to you. This is a divine moment. This is like, you know, if you could go back in history, church history, I mean, wouldn't you love to be at 155 in the arena with Polycarp when Polycarp was asked to deny the faith? And he said, 86 years have I served Christ. How can I deny him now? Wouldn't you love to have been there? Wouldn't you love to have been in Augustine, there in the garden, when he heard the voice, tele lege? Tele, lege? Wouldn't you love to have been there? St. Assisi in 1207, standing naked in the, in, the, in the town square, renouncing his father's uh, patronage to go out and start the Franciscans. Wouldn't you love to be there? Catherine of Siena in 1353, receiving a vision of Christ and she becomes the first doctor of the church. Wouldn't you have to be there when she had that vision of Christ which changed the world? Wouldn't you love to have been there when, when in 1517 when Martin Luther was nailing the 9 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church? Wouldn't you want to be there? Wouldn't you want to be there in, in on May 24, 1738? And John Wesley was down there in Aldersgate had been crushed by this miserable, man-centered mission to Georgia, came home crushed and defeated. And he's down there at Aldersgate listening to Martin Luther's preface, The Book of Romans, and felt his heart strangely warmed. Wouldn't you love to be there? I mean, I can think of a, I mean, We could be here all day long, the places that I would like to be present for, but one of them is surely this moment. Of, of, the, of Philip running up to the chariot and being invited into the chariot. And it's almost like a great uh, illustration of preaching. He goes into the chariot there and he opens up the text to him. He, he like D.L. Moody, he makes a beeline to the gospel. We don't know what he said to him, but we do know that there is no way that Ethiopian can understand. That's this whole play in the words between gnoskes, anagenoskes, what the text is saying is there's no way you can confuse or should confuse reading something with understanding something. The Bible must be enlivened by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And this is a special th- uh, uh, message in Luke. You know, they're going down the road to Emmaus, number in Luke, and they were kept from recognizing him. They get back into the, uh, to the home, and their eyes were opened, Twenty four thirty one, and they recognized him, the Inoigo, They their eyes were opened. He goes back, they go back to Jerusalem, they meet with the disciples, the disciples say, Here they are in the presence of the risen Christ. And the disciples disbelieve. We're told they disbelieve. We're told that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And I remember Paul later in Acts on the, with Lydia on the banks of right outside of Philippi talking to Lydia. And I had the privilege of going. Uh, to that spot outside of Philippi. I sat there on the bank. And I thought, what would it have been like for Paul to share the gospel? But the text does not simply say Paul shared the gospel and she responded to the great eloquence of Paul, his great learning, his great insights. No, it says the Lord opened her heart to receive Paul's message. Let me tell you, the, the Lord is the great evangelist. And later on in Acts 21.8, Philip, by that point, is known as Philip the Evangelist. But I tell you, I don't know how Philip felt about the title, but I bet you if you ask him, he'd say, no, I'm the assistant evangelist. Because there's one thing we learn in Acts is that God is the evangelist. And that's what gives you so much hope in ministry. When when I went to the North India mission field or going into North Georgia mountains, people like Kent... You cannot face it unless you believe God is the evangelist. And so here, uh, he is like the curator before a famous painting unfolding Isaiah to him. We don't know what he said to uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, but he, or showed him. He probably showed him Isaiah nine six, that great text where he says, I will make you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Here's Isaiah already preparing the church for its global mission. Last Wednesday, uh, Jessica made the great point about Isaiah in his own time was rejected. No one listened to his message, but he's still preaching the gospel today to us. Here's the Ethiopian eunuch being transformed by this message, but I am convinced that he must have turned Isaiah 56, 3 to 5. Because six times in this text, he is referred to as a eunuch. That is the primary identity of this man. Not that he's smart, though he is. Not that he's wealthy, though he's that. Not that he's an official. All those things are important, but six times he's a eunuch. And this is what Isaiah 6, 3-5 to says. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say... Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who maintain my covenant and hold fast to it, I will give them a name better than sons and daughters. Say amen to that. That is the good news of the gospel to the eunuch and to the rest of us to the power of the gospel. And so he preached the gospel. Then I love the kind of understatement here when the eunuch says... Well, well, they found chemical some water. Well, can anything prevent me from being baptizing? Is anything to stop me from being baptizing? Yeah, like a thousand things. You're a Gentile. You're uncircumcised. There's all kinds of reasons. But the Holy Spirit says, no, there's no reason. Baptize him. See, this is the whole point. There, this text is breaking through the wall of prescribed Jewish kind of uh, narrow view of the gospel and realizing, no, no, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. And the gospel will not be the gospel unless it goes out into Africa. And so he is baptized. When he comes up, a strange text, verse 39, Philip is snatched away 30 miles, see that on the thing down toward Gaza, up to Azotus. At least 30 miles snatched away. Now, I pray every day that this is the introduction of a, a future spirit transportation system. I, I cannot wait for the day when I am in, wherever I am, this weekend I'm in Lubbock, Texas, I would love in Lubbock, Texas preach my final message in Lubbock and i suddenly, whoo, find myself walking halfway along on the streets of Wilmore. <laughs> Lord, if that's in for the church, bring it back. <laughs> the Philip transportation system. But I think the point of this uh, and in other words, this is used multiple times. This snatching away is used for the, the saints on the, day, on the day when Christ returned. We're snatched away to meet the Lord in the air. It's used in Corinthians when Paul gets snatched up to meet the Lord in the heavenly vision. God does snatching. He can snatch you. I'm open to being snatched. But I think the bigger point of this is that God is driving the mission of the church. That's the point of all these parts of the text. He's got another summit for, for Philip. He was in Samaria. Now he's down in the road to Gaza. Now he's up to Zotus, And you'll notice he keeps make, right up the, the uh, whole coast there and eventually ends up in Caesarea. He evangelized the coast. That's why he's called Philip the Evangelist. And then Peter gets the call to go to Cornelius, who lives where? Caesarea. The whole thing comes full circle. I want to close with one last story to emphasize this. I really want you to be open to letting the Spirit guide you. I want you to also realize that God is driving the mission of the church. People ask me all the time, are you afraid of the church's dissolution and all the UMC problems? Absolutely not. Because Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will overcome it. This domination, that domination may pass away, but the church of Jesus Christ will not fail, and I am yoked to that. That's the gospel. Well, here's the Ethiopian eunuch uh, amongst the Cushitic peoples. Now, I don't know if you know kind of the layout of Africa. I want to come back to this point of this people movement in Africa is mostly among Bantu peoples. If you get below the Sahara Desert, you're going to find vast numbers of Bantu people. It's probably a half a billion people speaking 500 different languages that are coming to Christ in pretty remarkable ways. So my daughter is part of this. My daughter is down in sub-Saharan Africa. She's surrounded by Bantu peoples. Uh, The language of Tanzania uh, is Swahili, and, and Kiswahili is... Considered it is a, one of the keystone Bantu languages. So she is in the middle of this tribe, which seems to be cut off. They, they don't speak Swahili. They don't seem to really want interaction of the people. And she spends, there nine years. Well, she learned the language, because she, she also knows Swahili. She realizes something is different here. turns out this language she is learning is not a Bantu language at all. It's like discovering you're in a different family. It's a Cushitic language, which means this people group had migrated down from this very part of Africa, where the Ethiopian is from, and migrated down into Tanzania. Let me tell you, God is committed to the evangelization of the African peoples. God is committed to the evangelization of all peoples. But today, thinking about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, thinking about the conversion of that other African, St. Augustine from Algeria, and St. Anthony of the Desert from Egypt. These are three great early Christians that teach us from the very start of the New Testament that God's mission is not conscri- conscribed. It is global. And God is doing a global thing. And someday... We know as sure as we are in this room that, that John sees, Revelation 7:9, men and women from every tribe and tongue and language worshiping the Lord. That's where we're headed. It all begins here, and that's the mission that the church is being driven toward through the glorious work of the Holy Spirit. May we be led by the Spirit and driven along in this mission that God has unfolded for us in this text. Thanks be to God. Amen.